Welcome to the RHA Podcast. My name is Richard Triggs, and today's guest is Alan English, Executive Chairman at Silver Chef Limited. Well, I hope wherever you're listening to this, you're having a fantastic day. I'm excited about bringing this conversation with Alan to you. He's somebody I've been keen to get on the Aratay podcast for some time now. But before I introduce him to you, let me briefly introduce myself for those people who have not listened to the podcast before. My name is Richard Triggs and I'm the managing partner of Aratay Executive. And we recruit CEOs, senior leaders and non-executive directors throughout Australia. We also provide a range of career coaching solutions for people who are actively looking for a new role. So if I can be of any assistance to you, I'd welcome the opportunity to have a chat and please feel free to reach out to me via our website or LinkedIn. Now, let me introduce to you, Alan English. Alan English was born in Western Australia and began his career selling equipment into the hospitality industry. After moving to Brisbane in 1986, he founded Silver Chef Limited, which listed on the Australian Stock Exchange in 2005 and now operates in Australia, New Zealand and Canada. Alan is also highly involved in philanthropic activities, including previously having been a director of Karuna Hospice, a non-executive director of the School of Social Entrepreneurs, and currently a board member of Philanthropy Australia. He is also involved in his own not-for-profit Opportunity International and is a member of B Corporation. Sit back and enjoy this conversation with Alan English. Well, Alan, welcome to the Aratay podcast and what is an absolutely beautiful Brisbane winter morning. We're sitting in the Silver Chef War Room and uh, it's great to have you along. Uh, Perhaps just to begin with, if you could just share with uh, the audience uh, your professional background or your current range of professional responsibilities, I should say. Okay, so, well, currently I'm the uh, uh, Executive Chairman of Silver Chef. I'm uh, on the board of Philanthropy Australia. I'm uh, also on the advisory board for the Australian Centre for Philanthropic Studies at uh, QUT, mm-hmm. not-for-profit studies. Um, so uh, they're my main corporate roles. Though. Fantastic. And we're sitting in the uh, Silver Chef War Room, yeah. and I'm looking around the walls, and there's all sorts of posters and big, hairy, audacious goals and so on. Yeah. So what sort of things happen in here? Well, the War Room is really used by our leadership team and, and, and many others throughout the day. But the leadership team meets every day at 8.54 uh-huh. a.m. And we have a stand-up meeting for 10 minutes. It sounds like Vern Harnish. It is Vern yeah. Harnish all through and through. So okay. we've been using the Gazelle's methodology for about uh, 10 years now. Mm-hmm. And I think our track record on execution seems to indicate that it's a, it's a worthwhile methodology. Sure. Works. Okay. Okay, good. And uh, and so you've obviously got some big goals for the business. Let's talk mm. a little bit about that firstly. Sure. Well, in 2010, um, we sent the leadership team away for a weekend to develop up a vision about what the business would look like by 2020. Mm-hmm. And uh, out of that came up some of the key ratios and drivers of what we thought we'd measure uh, and what success would look like. 
Um, and out of that, uh, it, it, you know, one of the key things that came out of it is, is uh, our foundation's activity, because the foundation is the largest shareholder in Silver Chef. So mm -hmm. when we saw when I saw those numbers, there was a case of saying, well, what could we do from a foundation perspective? And that's where we came up originally with funding a million people out of poverty, and that then later on became 1.5 million when the staff got uh, mm -hmm. involved in the process. Okay, fantastic. And for those people who aren't familiar with uh, Silver Chef, tell us a little bit about the business. Okay, so Silver Chef is a, an equipment funder to the small and medium enterprise sector. We started mm -hmm. off in the hospitality sector. Um, so the, uh, the formation of the product was really recognising that uh, I was in the business of supplying pizza ovens into the marketplace mm -hmm. and we had many young people who were wanting to get into the sector but uh, our ovens in those days were selling for $29,000 at a time and uh, it was a lot of money and mm -hmm. uh, of course the banks when they went to get funding was sort of saying well how big's your house and if you didn't have a big house you couldn't get into business that mm -hmm. was sort of one of the golden rules. So that meant of course from my perspective that uh, I wasn't selling many ovens right. because I couldn't get finance for the clients. So then uh, I developed up a, a rent try buy model mm -hmm. which basically looked at it and said well you know take the perspective that most asset financing models around the world have been developed by investment bankers who are the holders of the resources mm -hmm. and they can get capital in chunks of four and five year terms and they put their overheads on, put a margin on it, sell it back into the marketplace four and five year terms. But when I looked at it from uh, the customer's perspective, you know, sitting very firmly as the customer saying, what do I see in need? And it was very clear that when you're in small business, you really have no idea what four years down the track mm -hmm. is going to look like. Three years is a bit of a wish, two years is a wild-ass guess. I can just see 12 months. Well, then when I create a product that says 12 months, mm -hmm. and, uh, uh, and if you realise that, then you say, well, look, you know, there has to be a rental product that's going to be that. Then it became clear that uh, from the customer's perspective, like all Australians, we don't rent our house forever, right? We want to be able to take an option to buy it at some stage. So then creating an option where we could give 75% of the rent back mm -hmm. off the price if they chose to buy it would be a, a nice flexible option to help them make the capital decisions when they know they've got a good business. Mm -hmm. Not at the start of the journey where they're in the hope and prayer stage, but when they've actually got cash coming through the till and they know that business is booming, now spend capital on a known information, not a guess. Mm -hmm. So that was part of the thesis of it. But it, what happens if it doesn't work? Um, so I gave them an option to return the equipment at the end of 12 months, and uh, that if they uh, if it didn't work out, and, and guess what, we wouldn't sell your house up. Mm -hmm. You just give it back, we'll take that equipment, put it through our refurbishment centre, polish it up, and send it back out and rent to someone else. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So that was the, 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 the context of, mm. of the framework of it. So it was really designing a product that um, meant uh, we match the customer's needs. Mm -hmm. And was it that model back when you found it in 86 all the way through to now or has it been adjusted and modified over that time? It was much, it was much simpler in its format initially. Mm -hmm. um, to grow the business, it's a, it's a very capital intensive business as you can imagine. Mm -hmm. So for every $10,000 in assets we'd put out in the field, we'd earn $100 a week or $115 a week. So the faster you grew, the more capital you needed. Mm -hmm. So in the early stages, it was really about uh, a much simpler model, uh, and I built a large sales organisation, and I was taking the profits from the sales business to fund the rental business. Okay. Um, we eventually grew the sales business to where we were the largest equipment supplier to McDonald's and a number of other the fast food chains across Australia. Mm -hmm. And uh, in 1995, I sold that equipment business 
off and got a, a, a nice bunch of capital, mm-hmm. which I thought was going to be the solution to all my funding problems. Sure. Which uh, then meant I, I went from a national business back to a, uh, a small uh, business and started again and used the capital to push into it. And when I got some time and space, that's when I really started refining the thinking and the model further to where it where it is today. Well, that's not really quite true. I mean, I think we're, we're continually evolving the product in small tweaks. As mm-hmm. well as just, uh, we've got one product and we just you know, refine it mm-hmm. every year or so. We're adding something more or adding another feature to it in some way to, re- to make it better. Yeah. Okay, great. Well, we'll uh, uh, delve into that a bit more later in this conversation, but I like to start with uh, going back to where it all began. So perhaps, uh, Alan, just talk us through where you were born and, you know, your early life, mum, dad, brothers and sisters, yeah, etc. Okay. Um, so uh, I was born in a wheat belt town called Muckenbooden in Western Australia. Right. People will know where Muckenbooden is, but halfway between Perth and Kalgoorlie okay. uh, there's a town called Meriden, and about 50 miles inland from there uh, was our farm. It was a wheat and sheep farm. Um, the nearest town was Muckenbooden, which was about 35 minutes drive away. Mm-hmm. Um, marginal uh, territory for, for farming. Mm-hmm. Um, I, there was no high schools out there, so I went to boarding school in Perth. And so your parents uh, both worked on the farm? Yes, uh, they were the second generation, so okay. my grandfather was the original pioneer who okay. uh, cut the trees down and, right. uh, and worked very, very hard to build a farm. Uh-huh. And brothers and sisters? Yes, I had two brothers and one sister. And were you the oldest? or when I did was you? the oldest. Right, yeah. okay. Mm-hmm. So uh, local primary school? Local primary school, and yeah. they went to boarding school in Perth. Um, and uh, while I was at boarding school, unfortunately, uh, my dad had uh, three years of very bad droughts and mm-hmm. wiped out the farm. Okay. And so they, then he moved to, uh, to Perth and uh, so therefore post-school um, I didn't have the farm to go back to so I actually was a railway ganger. I went and worked up in the Pilbara. Right. Uh, these are the times when the movie Red Dog was around. Oh, yes. 1972 was around about that sort of time. So I was a railway ganger working up there and it was a pretty tough part of uh, uh, life at that stage. I think any crim that was on the run anywhere in Australia was hiding up in the Pilbara at that I stage. I thought that was Alice Springs. <laughs> <laughs> and so when your dad moved uh, into Perth, what did yeah. he change his profession to? Uh, to, to a taxi driver. And okay. um, in Western Australia in those days, the, the country towns used to have their own shires, would have their own number plates, so people could recognise where, okay. where people came from uh, when they're in town. So um, dad used to drive around really looking for cars with the country number plate and pull up alongside them and say, how's the crops going? Right. Are you getting any rain yet? You okay. Know? So yeah. he was really a farmer uh, right through to the day he died. He just happened to be in a different location right. than he was, he was meant to be. Okay. And so uh, uh, after high school, you went immediately to work. There was no university? No. Okay. So I went to work and, um, and eventually travelled overseas and mm-hmm. uh, met my wife and got married and, uh-huh. uh, and then came back. Yeah. Met her overseas? No, I met her in Perth actually. She was an English girl uh, right. backpacking around Australia okay. and I met her on day three of her journey uh-huh. and uh, um, we've been married now for 39 years oh, and very happily too. I'm a very fortunate man. Yeah, I'm thinking about starting an alternative podcast which is uh, The Secrets of a Happy Marriage. <laughs> 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 no doubt uh, having a, a good home base has enabled you to uh, really put some good attention into the business, I'm sure. No, absolutely no doubt about that. Right, okay, so you're off working on the railway yep. and uh, what happened from there? Um, so there I, I eventually got into sales and um, the, the first sales job I ever had was... Uh, um, selling to young single women glory boxes, which no one would even know these days, where young girls used to put together all the gifts, uh, goods that they needed to bed linen, etc., right. to, uh, to start up a family home. And yes. So 
I, I got involved in sales with that. And so you're um, working for a manufacturer of those? Yeah, right. it, it was. It was wow, uh, okay. And, and uh, it was a lot of fun. I met some wonderful people and uh, I had a great time doing that. That's my first taste to get into sales and eventually yeah. moved into hospitality equipment. Okay. And um, that was then part of the journey of getting into this industry. Right, and uh, at what point did you move from being employee to uh, uh, you know, uh, business owner? Mm. Uh, one of those moments of blind luck, really. I mean, I think that um, at that particular stage was the uh, the time of my life where I was selling space invaders, actually, on a commission-only basis, where you put them into a site, right, and 50% of the profits would go to the shopkeeper, and and 50% okay. would go to the owner of the machine, right. And I knew it was a bit of a trend that wasn't going to last all that long, so I got another commission-only job for uh, selling ice cream machines, and uh, then I worked out that if someone couldn't afford the ice cream machine, I could sell the space and better machine. The profit on the space and better machine would pay the lease on the ice cream machine. Right. And away we went. Uh-huh. Um, and I was managing to be uh, top sales in the state for both companies, and uh, they didn't know I was working for each other, so All right. for the other company, which is kind of fun. So I was able to bank the wages of one, which bought us our first house, which was important. But the ice cream equipment company was, was certainly the, the one with the growth potential, and uh, in one weekend, the competitor stole three state managers from Queensland, New South Wales, and Victoria. Mm -hmm. My boss in Perth got promoted to uh, take over Queensland, which was the biggest state, and I got promoted to be state manager in WA. Mm -hmm. Three months later, the owners of the business said, wow, that really hurt. We never want to have that happen to us ever again. Mm -hmm. What we'll do is we'll change our business model into a franchise, and um, we'll sell it to the state managers and fund them into it. Okay. So I went from salesman on commission only to owning the business in three months. Right, okay. Fortuitous timing things, and, uh, and that really got my start. Yeah. Right, and when are we talking roughly? This uh, is early 80s. Early 80s. Mm -hmm. So not that, uh, uh, it wasn't much longer after that that Silver Chef was born. Yeah. Right, and so when you um, made the step from being a salesperson into being a manager of this business and then an owner of the business, when at that time did you look at your own skill set and think, you know, there are some uh, gaps here that I, I need to work on to uh, make sure I'm ready and competent to make that leap? No, uh, f frankly, no. It right. was really more about uh, once it became our business, uh, then it was a case of, of growing and developing, which I, I was able to do very well. I mean, mm -hmm. we, we certainly almost doubled the size of the business okay. once it was my ownership. And you'd given up Space Invaders by that time? Yeah, absolutely. Right. Okay. It was all full focus in those days. Yeah. Um, to an extent where the owners of the importers of the business um, asked me to sell out and come and join them working uh, for them out of Queensland. That's how I actually moved across to Queensland. Okay. So that provided me some wonderful opportunities. So I was then able to deal with major accounts like the McDonald's and all those right. sort of guys yeah um, and that uh, was when I really started learning uh, a lot more about business and, and how to mm -hmm. uh, operate with the big guys and, mm -hmm. and learn and understand what their needs were and how mm -hmm. to fulfill those so. okay so you, uh, they funded you into your Western mm -hmm. Australian franchise yep they then bought you out of that franchise? No, they asked me to sell out. So oh, I you sold, sold out. it? I, I sold out to someone else to come and join them. As Back as an employee or as an Yes, as an employee for okay. two years. Right. Um, and that was, uh, I was initially taken over to do what they call their national accounts, which is all the major accounts that the company had. Mm -hmm. uh, but after about six months, uh, they were pretty um, uh, Gold Coast entrepreneurs. They had lots of different business op businesses mm -hmm. that they were running at the time. And uh, one of the businesses got into trouble and they asked me to uh, see if I could go and fix it. And, okay. Uh, so I um, did so and was able to turn it around and get it 
running again. What sort of business was that? Um, the first one was a food equipment, dis- like one of the uh, states that was in the okay. uh, food equipment business got into trouble. Mm-hmm. Uh, fixed it up and then they said, well, you're good at that. Can you go and fix up another one we've got here, which is a paper cup manufacturing plant, right. which I'd you know, um, never been inside a, a factory before, let alone been running one. So I got involved in fixing that one up. Okay. And so they tend to use me as being their fix-it man right. to go through, but which was wonderful because I got so much good experience about different okay. types of businesses and what the key drivers right. were to turn a business around and all that sort of stuff. So why do you think that you were particularly good at fixing businesses that were either broken or in trouble? I mean, because I listened. Okay. Uh, I mean, the, the fundamentals of it was... If you want to find out what the problems are, go and talk to the staff. Mm-hmm. I.e., the paper cup manufacturing plant. You know, um, you know when I got the staff together, it was a case of talking to them about, you know, why are we only running at thirty-five percent efficiency for this machine? You know, mm-hmm. what, are, what, are, what are the problems? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, reality is that the paper gets jammed, and I can't see it because it's too dark in there. Can we get a light that shines right. a light over where the problem is, and I'll be able to fix it quicker? Well, that's not hard to do. Now sure. Let's do that. Okay. I'm sick of standing on concrete floors for 10 hours a day. My feet get tired. I have to take a break on a regular basis. Mm-hmm. Is it possible we could get rubber mats around the mm-hmm. machine so my feet don't get tired? Mm-hmm. Well, that's not hard. Let's do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Those sorts of things, just finding out the... And, and so do. was that a skill that you developed naturally or had you seen others and learnt from their uh, leadership style? No, mine was just based on pure ignorance. Okay. I had no idea what, what a paper cup manufacturing plant looked like. Right. And I had to find out from people who knew. Mm-hmm. So by asking... Uh, dumb questions, lots yeah. and lots of dumb questions to okay. get knowledge and understanding of what other people's perspectives were. Mm-hmm. And that was important. Okay, so it sounds to me as though you were able to make some quite easy, uh, immediate changes mm-hmm. in the sort of operation of the business. What about yeah. it in terms of the external, uh, you know, market conditions and the way that you positioned uh, or changed the positioning of the mm-hmm. business in the market? Well, in that particular case, there, I mean, they had more opportunities than they could fulfil, but they had such quality issues and production issues that it was, it was, I wasn't, in that particular function there of the paper cup factory, I wasn't worried so much about the sales function because I knew that I could get that. Okay. Um, because there was only one other very large manufacturer dominated the marketplace. So mm-hmm. There was only two players in town and that particular one had production issues and it was mm-hmm. more about getting that right and I knew if you got that right, the volumes would come and mm-hmm. that's, that's really how it was. Okay. And so what was the impetus then to uh, uh, move into what then became Silver Chef? Oh, at the end of the day there, it was uh, after two years, um, the, the entrepreneurs took a couple of wild guesses that didn't work. Okay. And cash started running out and uh, so I uh, left to go and establish uh, my own business again. Mm-hmm. So really, you know, um, since I've been 20 years old, I've been pretty self-employed for most of my life. I've only had two years where I was working for anybody else, and sure. that was that two-year period. Okay. Mm-hmm. And uh, reading the sort of bit of background uh, uh, on the internet, so you were somewhere and you saw these pizza ovens at a conference, or and you just saw an opportunity there and decided to grab it? Pretty much. I was at, I was at a restaurant uh, trade show in Chicago, and... Uh, the, uh, I could see home delivery pizza stores opening up all over the states. Right, it was the new big thing that was yeah. happening. So I thought, well, that trend will come to Australia, no doubt. So mm-hmm. uh, I managed to secure the agency for um, a conveyor-style pizza oven, mm-hmm. and um, we started importing those into Australia. Uh huh. And uh, that that sort of became part of the journey. Right. And when you say we, who was we? My my partner was Doug Lamborn. He Doug was um, came from the technical uh, support. Uh, side of the business, so he was, he was a brilliant uh, guy to be able to fix problems for, mm-hmm. 
for equipment, and so he became my partner. We both mortgaged ourselves to the hilt to right. get a container of ovens out, yeah. and uh, got them out and found that uh, the marketplace wasn't uh, particularly one particular account. Was Pizza Hut was the biggest player in town in those days. Mm -hmm. and, uh, they uh, had a, a program lined up for the number of stores that were going to open up, and uh, they, that particular oven was the approved one from the USA. Uh, but the programs got delayed by three months, mm -hmm. and uh, so we ended up with a shed full of ovens from those sales. Right. And uh, when we tried to sell them, we had the issue about the capital price. Yes. It was so expensive. And that's when it became a little difficult. We had um, banks looking for interest on the arrears, mm -hmm. etc., mm -hmm. which we hadn't generated a sale. Mm -hmm. So that's when uh, I came up with the idea, well, perhaps if I can put some out on rent, at least mm -hmm. the rent will cover the bank's uh, interest payments until hopefully the pizza gets their act together and we start mm -hmm. getting a few sales. And that's how it started. And. Uh, we were able to rent them quite easily. People said, as long as we don't have to come up with the capital, yeah, right. we're happy to do that. Because you'd already bought them, so it was, yeah. a, it was a sunk cost. Correct. Right, okay. And uh, uh, this idea of rent to buy was mm. you know, quite innovative. Had you seen that operating elsewhere and, and adopted it, or no. it was a, uh, a spark of genius? Oh, yeah, I don't know about the genius part of it. It was really more about thinking about the customer, just saying, well, you know, if I was a customer, what would I need? Mm -hmm and not be constrained by what currently is, mm -hmm. but start from a fresh piece of paper. What okay. does it look like? You know? And that's, that's really where it came from. So it was just really by taking the perspective of the customer and just genuinely understanding what their needs were was mm -hmm. where the evolution of the product came from. Mm -hmm. So it sounds like it was a bit of a build it and they will come type process in that you said, okay, there are these young people who would love to be entrepreneurs and start their mm -hmm. own pizza business, mm -hmm. how did you then start to bring your offering to their attention? Oh, the old knock on doors. Okay. You know, just get out there and grow it. I mean, the demand for the rental product was always greater than our capacity to fund. Mm -hmm. You know, that was, it was always the issue. I always had to keep on building the sales business to get enough capital to fund the rental opportunities. So mm -hmm. it was clear there was a, a, a large market there. Um, so Fred's talking to his mate who started a pizza shop yeah. and he says, oh, I'd love to do that too. And his friend says, oh, you need to go and talk to Alan. Yeah. That's how you're going to um, get rolling. Nearly all our business came from his Right, friend, okay. Um, from existing clients. Right. And in the meantime, once Pizza Hut uh, is up and running, mm -hmm. they're buying gear from you, which is yep. giving you the capital to then Correct. manage your rental fleet. Yep. That's okay, okay right. Yeah. And so how did it roll out from there? What were some of the key milestones between then and now as we sit here in 2016? Well, key milestones would have been, you know, 95 of selling the uh, equipment sales business to get the capital to fund the growth. Mm -hmm. um, and we then were able to grow the business and the next milestone probably would have been about 2000 when I ran out of capital again. Mm -hmm. And then it was a case of trying to get more capital to fund it. But because I had a unique product and it was a slightly different model, it was very hard to get funding. So I'd go to the banks and they'd say, listen, I need some funding for this business model and they'd say, well, you've got a 12-month contract and you don't even recover your capital, so mm -hmm. how can we lend you money mm. you don't even recover your capital? Mm -hmm. uh, we'll lend you, I started off at 30 cents on the dollar right? Uh, and I had to come up with 70 cents. Mm -hmm. you know? And eventually over time I sort of got up to 50 to 60 cents, um, but it was very, very difficult. And, and so. I looked at private equity as being potentially someone to get involved with this, but when I did the numbers it was terribly, terribly expensive. Um, and I wasn't ready to list in that stage, we were far too small. And I 
really got stopped, the most important thing at that stage was that I, I stopped and asked myself the question, well, why are you trying to make more money? Mm -hmm. Because the business at that stage was generating about $50,000 a month profit. I mm -hmm. had six staff. It was a beautiful little business. And you still had the same business partner? No, I'd bought my partner out um, when I, uh, back in 1990. So okay. Doug was my partner for the first five years okay. and I bought him out mm -hmm. after that. So. Okay. Um, so by 2000, uh, I was the sole uh, owner of the business, and working on the on the aspect about the, uh, the 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 reason about why to make money. I mean, purely just to be making money for money's sake is a bit of a hollow existence. Mm -hmm. I, mean, I, I lived in the same house I lived in for 25 years. I wasn't into big boats and cars. It was more the game itself. Yeah, that I enjoyed. It's like playing tennis. You know. Mm -hmm. You want to be the best tennis player. Occasionally, you check on the scoreboard to see how you're going, but it's the shots you're playing and what you're doing is is what you're enjoying. Mm -hmm. That's how I saw business. So, because I couldn't answer the reasons about why I was trying to make more money, it meant that I, I stopped for a while, and uh, I then let I had a guy who was my sales manager, Jim Quinn, um, run the day-to-day -day business. Said, "Mate, you've got." The amount of cash that comes in the till every month, that's mm. how much you've got to spend. Right. You can't spend any more. Okay. So I went off volunteering for a while and um, I ran a wine, food and jazz festival in Brisbane called Ambiwera, which was a fundraiser for St Aidan's. Right. Had a lot of fun doing that. Um, so you completely divorced yourself from the day-to-day -day operations? Not completely. I mean, I was still working in and out of the business. Okay. But I, but I, I was constrained because of capital. And yeah. remembering at this stage, I'm a little lost. I'm not quite mm -hmm. sure what my mm -hmm. next steps are going to be. Mm -hmm. um, then I got involved in, in donating to some charities. And I, the first one I did was Opportunity International, which is a microfinance yes. provider to women in developing countries. Which you're still involved with? Yes, very much so. We provide offices from here in okay. Australia, and I'm okay. still very much involved with that organisation. Um, and so I made the first donation, which was about $10,000, and um, uh, to fund a, a group of women, 15 to 20 women in Manila, mm -hmm. to start, a, start funding small loans of a couple hundred dollars at a time mm -hmm. and to start a small business. They rang me after I'd made the donation and said, well, it's the next time you're down in Sydney, there's any chance you can drop in and see us. And uh, I said, sure. So I was down in Sydney a month or so later and I called and seen them and uh, they said to me that, um, you know, uh, we really would appreciate some help if you could um, set up an office for us in Queensland as a volunteer. We don't have any money to pay you, but we've got no presence in Queensland. And I thought, well, yeah, that, that, that's probably something. Remembering I'm a bit lost at the moment. Mm -hmm, I'm not quite mm -hmm. sure what my next steps are. And, and during that period, did you think to uh, uh, take on a coach or a, a formal mentor or somebody to help you through this process? No, because it's about what is the purpose of money. If, can you find a, a coach that can tell me about what the purpose of money is? Most of them don't know. They just think the accumulation of wealth is the only successful reason for happiness. And let me assure you, it's not. Sure. Well, there I, I know a variety of coaches from a variety of backgrounds, but at, uh, so it was quite a consideration at that time to say I'm not going to take on a coach because this is you know uh, an internal dialogue that I need to yeah. solve for myself. And, and that's the truth. The, right. You know, to establish your own personal truth must come from within. It mm -hmm. can't come from anybody else. You know, so, and at that stage, I hadn't found that. Um, when I got involved in the charitable aspects, I actually went to the field and looked at the work they were doing and, and got involved and, and really thoroughly enjoyed um, playing a more active role where mm -hmm. you could use your skills and resources to be of benefit to others. And I thought, that's pretty cool. I'm mm -hmm. really enjoying this. And financially, I, I, I was had a good successful business, so mm -hmm. it enabled me to be able to do it full time. I was 
Uh, and there were no be. competitors coming into the market. They no. saw your model and uh, you really had a, a blue ocean. Oh, it certainly is a blue, uh, Silver Chef is definitely a blue ocean product. Right. Um, and the reason for that, I mean, diversion of thought here a bit, but um, from a competitive advantage is the barriers to entry are really quite considerable. Sure. So we, uh, uh, we know that it takes about two years to get to break even, mm -hmm. um, and you need about 20 million of capital. Mm -hmm. So what that means is you've got to get so many pieces of equipment out there mm -hmm. where the rent comes in to pay the wages of the staff and the interest in your overhead yeah. structure and everything else like mm -hmm. that. Mm -hmm. So if you can imagine an entrepreneur having a pitch to a bank, he says, listen, I've got this great idea. What I'm going to do is, is, is rent equipment, but it's going to take me two years to break even, and it's going to cost $20 million, and I'm going to be renting equipment to restaurants. Yeah. It's not a long conversation, <laughs> right? <laughs> so, I, uh, seeing how many restaurants come in and out of business so quickly, uh, I completely get what you're yeah. saying. So, uh, Alan, one of the things we haven't spoken about so far is B Corporation, which I imagine for most people listening will be completely foreign to them. Yeah, so sure. uh, tell us about that. So B Corporations are, um, there's, let me see, there's 1,700 companies in around 50 countries around the world that have gained accreditation as a B Corporation. Okay. Silver Chef is one of those. The B Corporation really is, uh, has a slightly different view of traditional uh, capitalism model. And it's looking up where, I think it was Milton Friedman said that the only reason why a corporation exists is for its shareholders. Mm -hmm. And that might have been right in the thinking back in the 60s. But these days, people realise that staff are an important stakeholder mm -hmm. you should consider when you're making decisions. But they also look at it from a corporate governance perspective that you've got to be a, a true and ethical citizen these days. Uh, environmental sustainability is important. And also having a connection to community. To get a B Corporation uh, certification is quite a rigorous process where you've got to provide evidence to a third party that you actually say and do all the things that you do. Mm -hmm. There's a total of 200 points uh, uh, available and you've got to get 80 to qualify. Silverchef so got 83, so right. we, we okay. scraped across the line. Good on you. But the, it, it's really about a, a tribe of, of believers uh, around the world who say that we want to use business as a force for good. Mm -hmm. So that obviously from a, 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 a resource perspective and employment creation programs, how can we ensure that we're acting in the best possible interest for all our stakeholders. So the Benefit Corporation legal status uh, in the USA has now been created in 32 out of the 50 odd states. Mm -hmm. So it's quite a movement going through because governments want to be able to see business taking a more active role in their communities and, and acting in an ethical manner and of course all the environmental sustainability etc. So was it originally that. a government led? Uh, no, no. Okay. It wasn't. It was quite interesting actually. The, the two guys that founded this um, had an athletic shoe company, basketball shoe company right. in the USA and um, they uh, decided to give uh, some of their profits that they were making back to lower socio-economic areas where mm -hmm. these kids were playing. And of course, it suddenly became the cool shoe, hip right. shoe to have. Yeah. Massive growth in business. Five years later, they sell out for $250 million to a private equity company. Okay. Private equity guys come in and say, hmm, how can we add some value into this? Let's cut all that community uh, donation right. stuff that we're doing there. And that'll go straight to the bottom line. And of course, within a relatively short time, they were bankrupt. Sure. And the, pre the entrepreneurs who created the business said, wow, that really hurt a lot of stakeholders mm. that were in there. How can we create a change in our constitution as a business to ensure that whoever bought them would have to abide by taking 
their staff into mm-hmm. consideration, their ethical position, their corporate governance and community as part of the decision-making model. And that's really where big corporations mm. uh, have been established. And uh, so was that something that you heard about and had a desire to participate in, or did they come to you? Uh, no, my daughter was the one who actually raised it for okay. me, uh, that, that asked me to have a look at it. Um, and the reason why I got behind it is that, uh, you know, the philosophy about how uh, we created Silver Chef together with our, uh, with our team of people has been very much around mm-hmm. alignment to a greater purpose than mm-hmm. just uh, our financial returns. So the big corporation philosophy was very much uh, in align with us. But the availability is not just for big corporations. This is for small businesses, mm-hmm. are, are larger members of this uh, organisation as well. So it's, it goes right the way. I think Silver Chef's the largest in Australia at this okay. stage yeah. um, that's doing that. But it's really encouraging because what it means is that you can attract great talent in your organisation mm-hmm. because if you can demonstrate that you're, you're, you're coming from this perspective, your customers will also choose to do more business with you. you mm-hmm. know, they want to deal and, and give their hard-earned cash to companies that align to the values that they hold in the world. Mm-hmm. So it's great for recruiting and getting great talent around you, but it's also great for your customers because they want to be able to choose to deal with somebody who cares about the world rather than someone who doesn't. You know? mm-hmm. Although I imagine uh, at this point, you know, most of your customers, you'd need to educate them about what it means because they wouldn't be aware of it. Correct. So it's the early stage development of this mm-hmm. uh, movement. Um, but it's a tribe, and mm-hmm. it's a tribe of people who believe that business can be used as a force for good. Mm-hmm. You know, we've got uh, great capacity to bring positive change in our communities, and by engaging staff and a corporation to saying, together, let's take on a project that's in our local community. We want, we want to see change. We want mm-hmm. to add some values back to our communities. How can we do that? Well, the B Corporation movement provides a framework mm-hmm. of being able to structure and right. create. So it's almost like a a Bureau Veritas for culture. There you go. Right, okay, nice. fantastic. So how would people uh, get involved with that then? Really encourage them to have a look at the bcorporation.com.au uh, mm-hmm. uh, mm-hmm. website um, and uh, start exploring. There's mm-hmm. some videos and lots of material about there and make contact with uh, the B Corp people. Mm-hmm. They're great, they operate here in Australia and New Zealand, but right around the world. They're okay. Great. They've got uh, entities now, so. And I also noted that uh, you've won uh, through BRW top 50 employers of the year for mm. four years in a row. Mm. Uh, so these acknowledgements, I suppose, are building your employer of choice brand and uh, are tools that you use when you're uh, engaging future employees into the business as well. Absolutely. I, I really truly believe that um, the Silver Chef would be 10% of its current size if we'd operated through traditional thinking mm-hmm. about recruitment. Mm-hmm. I mean, getting the right people around you is one of the key uh, drivers for success. Mm-hmm. And people want to be able to work with an organisation that can not only recognise their value, but also have a, a, a shared cultural perspective on what they and how they make meaning out of the world. And they want to be organised, uh, working with a company that's really got a purpose about them. So that's mm-hmm. been very much part of our culture and that's one of the reasons why we've been successful. Okay, great. Well, uh, we'll certainly, uh, again, put some show notes in around B Corporation so people can check that out. And, uh, you know, very interesting to see these new uh, tools coming out in the marketplace which are very clearly being positioned to enable organisations to attract like-minded people. Terrific, thanks Richard. Okay, so uh, you're having your uh, philanthropic uh, diversion, Mm -hmm. and uh, what happened then? Um, So a project came up in East Timor um, when they'd just gone through independence at that stage, and um, 
uh, th they had a project which was about putting rural microfinance branches in the rural areas of, of East Timor. Now, how you prevent slums in the developing world is if you can create ec economic activity in the rural areas, it stops people going to the city looking yeah. for work. Right? Yeah. So it was a vitally important mm -hmm. um, project, and uh, I got half a dozen mates and tipped them upside down for some money, and I mm -hmm. put in a bunch, and we funded the project. And I actually went up to East Timor for the opening of that project with my daughter Rachel, and uh, we uh, came back. And about a month later, um, I'm sitting at home on a Sunday night, catching up at the mail, and uh, mm -hmm. a report came through from Opportunity International saying that um, that one project will move 40,000 people out of poverty mm -hmm. over the next five years. And I was gobsmacked by the number. I just thought, gee, you know, it's a football stadium full of people. Mm -hmm. And uh, the beautiful thing about it is I don't know I exist. There's, there's, there's absolute purity in this. Mm -hmm. Then it became, well, wouldn't it be fun if you could do something like that every year? And then it became, would that give you a reason to go back to work and overcome your capital issues if you could do that every year? And I suddenly decided, ah, now I've got a reason why to make money. I've got, got a purpose. Okay. And that became the igniter. Mm -hmm. And what's quite extraordinary, I found, is that um, when you have a purpose about making money that's greater than you, that's not about you or ego or material goods that you're... Uh, wanting to accomplish it means that you you actually give yourself permission to succeed. Mm -hmm. Give yourself permission to play the very best you can mm -hmm. play, but play the game at your highest possible potential because it's not about you anymore. Mm -hmm. So all of a sudden, that lens of how to see the world meant that I came back into the business and suddenly got introduced to people that where doors have been closed before were suddenly saying, "Well, mm -hmm. actually, go and have a chat to Richard. He might be able to help you." Sure. Yeah, go and have a chat. All of a sudden, doors opened up all over the place. And wow, that's fascinating. Yeah. I've never heard anybody uh, describe it. I've certainly read Senek's work about Begin with Why. I don't know if you're uh, familiar yes. with that or not, but. Um, was that, uh, you just had a light bulb moment um, uh, and suddenly it formulated what appears now when you talk about it as being quite a considered uh, perspective on business or was that something that uh, again just kind of unfolded over time? Oh no, it was the light bulb moment, it right. was the change of gears in my thinking mm -hmm. about why do you want to make money? Mm -hmm. I mean, if, if you're just making money for the accumulation of material goods, what a hollow existence. Oh, sure. You know, it's just, it, it just doesn't work for me. Right. I so imagine that must have been incredibly energising. Absolutely, and, and extraordinarily powerful in the sense that um, you're stepping into a different space. Mm -hmm. You're stepping into a different space about how you see and make meaning out of the world. And once mm -hmm. you, you have that change of lens, then it means that you can uh, really powerfully engage in your work that you're doing and mm -hmm. fortunately enough that people around us got a smell of what that energy was like mm. and that bigger vision about what we were trying to do in the world so I was able to attract better quality talent mm -hmm. around us and the business grew. And sort of uh, what year are we talking now? So now we're talking 2002. Okay. okay. Um, I raised uh, by meeting the right people, uh, Andrew Kemp was w w one of the key uh, players in the space, and we we did a um, a convertible note issue, um, which uh, was uh, thirteen and a half. No, it wasn't a convertible note; it was an unsecured note initially, uh, which was thirteen and a half million, which really was an awful lot of money for a little company that I was at the time. Mm -hmm. um, but I promised a listing on the stock exchange mm -hmm. if we could use that capital and make it grow, and that mm -hmm. was enough to get people in. And then in 2005, we listed. Mm -hmm. um, Not for the faint-hearted? 
No, it was quite a quite a challenging process, but but it, you know, my business model was capital hungry. I, mm -hmm. need, I need capital to be able to make this model grow to its potential. Mm -hmm. so Prior to possible. that, uh, was there an external board of advisors or anybody like that no. in place? So it was you and the same sort of core team of six or seven uh, yep. sales manager, largely driving the day to day business. Yeah. Yep. Okay. I mean, I, I back in the early nineties, I did an MBA part-time, which was an action learning based MBA, so I'd built up a lot of skills to, to, to try and manage growth. It was mm -hmm. really about building enough skills to be leading a fast-growing organisation yeah. was my my drivers for mm -hmm. it. So I had a certain level of skills there to be able to, um, knew to be able to take the business to its next stage. And how did you find, having been a successful entrepreneur going into an MBA process, what was, um, was the learning uh, challenging? Was it a bit underwhelming? I mean, I imagine a lot of what they would have been teaching would have been just, uh, you know, a uh, part of the course for you. No, not, not at all. I mean, I loved it. I absolutely loved it. It was an, it was an action learning based MBA that was run out of Bond University. Mm -hmm. <coughs> and it just meant that all the subjects that you were doing, you had to research and find out what was best practice around the world and then apply it into your own business mm -hmm. and then do a reflection paper on how it went. Okay. If you had to do it again, what would you do differently? Right, you okay. Know? And uh, so it's a very practical way of learning and uh, I thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed it and it was my uh, material I used to go to for many of the decisions I was making was my reference material right. that I'd uh, okay. made in that period. So, so that was pre-listing? Yes, that was that was back in uh, uh, 92 to 95. Okay, period, yeah. okay. And so uh, listing 2005? Listing in 2005. So we, we listed... Uh, with a market cap of $11 million from memory. And it was um, kind of fun. I remember going into uh, uh, Riverside uh, Centre and uh, getting the, the nice little plaque for listing and we're all standing around and uh, the price is a dollar goes up on the screen and mm -hmm. there's a silver chef up there and $1. And right. And we're, there's about 10 of us all sitting and they're waiting with great anticipation to see what the share price might move to. And there was no movement after 10 minutes I ever heard one of the brokers whispered to his mate, can you go and get someone to buy a bloody share? You know, <laughs> so all of a sudden the share price kicked to a dollar right. Hooray, well right. listed, you know. We eventually closed by lunchtime, and that day we were at a dollar sixty-five. So uh -huh. we went and had a very boozy lunch for my wife's birthday and the fact that we listed on the same day. Very so good. Well, look at uh, Don May now and you know where his share price is. Yeah. Wow. wow, pretty exciting stuff. Indeed. And so, uh, and so uh, 11 years post listing mm. the business now as i understand employing about 200 people no we're a bit more than that we're 378 i think it was the last time right we, we uh, looked um we uh, got operations in uh, new zealand and canada and, mm -hmm. um, and the business is, is is going along at a nice rate mm -hmm. of knots and mm -hmm. the business is going well okay great and so when you look to the future uh talking firstly about the business and then we'll talk about your philanthropic uh, mm -hmm. activities uh in terms of silver chef you know what are some of the uh goals that you're excited about achieving well we've got a goal to be in uh, you know, four countries by 2020 we're currently in three so there'll be another country coming along at some stage that um, we will do to fulfill that goal it could be any or you've got a specific one in mind oh we're in research mode you know, we've okay. been looking at a number of different countries in the past mm -hmm. and then sort of using our filters to be able to get selective but so far, we haven't found anybody who's got our particular unique model. So right, uh, and that are focused in the hospitality sector. So that's been uh, that's kind of funny because it's a much more wider range yeah. of, of choices that we'll make, not from a competitive point of view, but any other what is right for the company at the time. Yeah. So. And was New Zealand and Canada 
uh, the early choices because they're very similar to Australia or were there other drivers? Oh, though there was other drivers. I mean, we had a look at uh, Singapore initially, um, and really that's quite a sophisticated restaurant scene, but more than 50% of the businesses are mostly takeaway food stores right. or market stores. Yeah, sure. You know, they're not quite our customers. No, okay. So then we looked at the UK. Um, the UK had uh, the biggest movement there is the gourmet pub market. Mm -hmm. And uh, at the time there was like 6,000 pubs owned by two hotel groups. Mm -hmm. Well, you wouldn't want to risk pissing one of them off, would you? So no, I, sure. I um, thought that was too concentrated um, and then when we went to Canada it was just tick the box all mm -hmm. the way through it, so mm -hmm. it was good. And is Pizza Hut a client? Oh, I suppose uh, not being in the sale business now they wouldn't be. Uh, I had the uh, head of Pizza Hut for Canada on my podcast oh, recently, really? okay. who's a young guy who grew up in Ipswich. Oh, uh, and okay, and so uh, moving into an additional um, international country, what are some of the other goals? Uh, well, well, certainly we've got a number of them. I mean, we've, we've got to fund a a uh, billion dollars worth of assets, which is some of the other ones. Um, we've got, uh, which w on all the goals we have got in place, we're tracking where we're going against that 2020 goal, so that's the major mm -hmm. ones that we're looking to bed down. We've um, got a number of key investment things that we'll be doing to uh, ensure that the business gets refined and back of house gets investments in IT and all mm -hmm. those other mm -hmm. normal things that businesses do sure. along the way. But a key goal from the foundation's perspective with that is that if we we now got a goal to get 1.5 million people out of poverty and, mm -hmm. and as, as the foundation is now the largest shareholder in Silver Chef it means the more successful the company becomes mm -hmm. the more uh, income comes to the foundation to be distributed back out to the community so, mm -hmm. that's, so that's an important part of the cultural piece of who we are and our purpose um, the company's purpose is very clear to everybody which is uh, helping people achieve their dreams mm -hmm. so, we want to do that with our customers. We also want to be able to do it with our staff to help them achieve their potential mm -hmm. the way through. And of course, when it comes to our uh, philanthropic activities, it means that we are connected to uh, helping people achieve their dreams in that space mm -hmm. as well. Sounds cool. That's excellent. Arate, the name of my business, means uh, the fulfillment of one's full potential. Mm. And uh, so I, I really resonate with what you're talking about. When you're employing people into the business, how are the ways that you uh, clearly articulate that and look for commonality in terms of value set mm. to ensure that they're a good fit? Certainly, well, we use a methodology called top grading, okay. um, which um, we've been using now for oh, nine or ten years. Mm -hmm. so, uh, top grading is a methodology where you can, uh, by a series of question process, you can identify the A-grade players. So there's uh, A-grade players are the top 10% of people in the employment space at that mm -hmm. salary range. Mm -hmm. Um, now, once we were smart enough to identify who they were, uh, it then, of course, there was other smart companies that were out there that also could identify who the A-grade players were. And mm -hmm. we used to win about 50% of the talent would come to us. Mm -hmm. And uh, um, then, once we did our BHAG work and our, uh, our social purpose mission about where we're going and, and the shift to the foundation shareholding becoming significant, um, then our HR team started sharing uh, what our purpose was as an organisation and the foundation's activity and our million people out of poverty and our core values, etc. Suddenly our recruiting process went from uh, winning 5 out of 10 to winning 9 out of 10. Mm -hmm. uh, because young people, particularly Gen Ys, now they want to be able to have a career, make good money, but they also want to change the world. They want yes. to be part of a purpose mm -hmm. that's greater than, uh, than just uh, making money in their mm -hmm. weekly wage packet. So by getting great talent around us, we've now been able to build a fabulous team mm -hmm. that's delivering 
outstanding customer satisfaction levels. Uh, Silver Chef uh, Net Promoter Score is our main measurement for customer satisfaction. Mm -hmm. uh, we're currently at 78. Our nearest competitor in the finance game is 14. Wow. And banks run between minus five and plus five. You know, and, so. and how do you... Uh, how do you collect those statistics to make those comparisons? So we, we, we survey every single customer every month. Uh, sorry, I, uh, I use Net Promoter Score as well. Right. I mean, how do you compare, how do you understand what your competitor, you said they're at 14%? Based well, this is public information. Okay. So there's the, on ASX announcements or okay. there's uh, other data that's gathered out there. Mm -hmm. And Net Promoter Score themselves are pretty good at gathering mm -hmm. up information. There's a number of papers that are out there about uh, companies who are using Net Promoter mm -hmm. Scores and where they're currently sitting and all okay. that sort of stuff. So it's not hard to find. Right. Obviously, you know, uh, I know Vern Harnish and his uh, methodology is very numbers-centric. You know, looking around the room, there's lots of charts and talking about, uh, you know, Net Promoter Scores and other tools mm. that you use. <coughs> Excuse me. That's been a big part of your... Uh, your own process in terms of overall overall uh, visibility of the business to really go to the numbers? Oh, certainly. I mean, it's about the execution component. So, I mean, as an entrepreneur, um, my early stage methodology of growing the business was always uh, about firing myself out of roles. Right. So I'd be having a shave in the morning and I'd be looking at um, myself in the mirror and saying, you know, as a marketing manager, you're crap, you're fired. You're not doing a good enough job, you know. So then I'd look there and say, okay, well, how much is it going to cost me for a marketing manager? Well, probably 100 grand. Okay, so um, how much time are you really spending on marketing? And I said, well, probably 10 hours a week. Mm -hmm. right, so if you freed up 10 hours a week out of your calendar, how could you make 200 grand a year? Yeah. Uh, 100 to pay for the marketing manager, 100 to add value. Mm -hmm. And then as the entrepreneur, I just look around for the next opportunity and I go, grab that, there it is, mm -hmm. let's go. Mm -hmm. Now, I was pretty good and effective at doing that, but what I was doing behind me is creating havoc because, of course, I was bringing in far too many new initiatives right. into the business that, yeah. that they were still executing the previous one mm -hmm. halfway through before I was landing another one on top mm -hmm. of them. You know. So I realised the greatest risk to the business was actually me. Mm -hmm. So I needed to be able to establish a methodology to be able to execute so that I could bring into the business and have a, a standardised methodology to execute uh, these initiatives we're driving through. And that's where the Gazelle's mm -hmm. method came in. And, um, and it's worked extremely well for mm -hmm. us. Well, you strike me as somebody who uh, has a lot of emotional intelligence. Uh, and uh, obviously at one point you did your MBA, but subsequent to that, where are you drawing your sort of general business learnings from? Are you reading? Are you looking at what's happening in the market? Are you talking to other like-minded people about their own experiences? How do you continue to grow and evolve as a leader? That's an interesting question. Um, I, one of my personal core values is, is curiosity. So I'm an extraordinarily curious person. I love reading and learning. Mm -hmm. I'm always reading. I, I, I don't waste time to listen to radio stations. I'm mm -hmm. always listening to a podcast. I'm doing something that's going to enhance my understanding of other people's perspectives. Mm -hmm. So I um, did a course a couple of years ago called Generating Transformational Change, which was um, a wonderful course where you had to complete 32 open-ended questions on leadership and go through a one-hour Skype interview just right. to get into the course. Wow, and, and who ran that? Uh, Pacific Integral. Okay. Um, and they, that whole process is really about looking at the levels of human development, about the stages that people go through. You know, we, we had a viewpoint many years ago, of course, 30 years ago, the general view was that once an adult was grown to six foot tall or whatever foot, uh, 
right. full height would be, yes. um, that therefore their internal growth in learning had stopped as well. So mm. therefore, you know, university finished at uh, uh, 22 or 23 and they must made the assumption you're now fully grown, so you must be, intellect must be fully grown as well. And that's of course totally rubbish. Mm. You know, we as human beings continually go through stages of development right mm -hmm. throughout our lives. So I've been very much into development psychology and understanding philosophy about what are the stages of human development, mm -hmm. observe those within myself, observe them within others, and as a, uh, a leader and a coach, I look at how can I develop people to be maximising their potential mm -hmm. of where they are at their current time. Mm -hmm. um, so that's, that space means you never stop learning. Mm -hmm. you, know, you can observe within yourself and also within others that... Uh, it becomes a rich tapestry of the decisions you're making about how you can influence the world. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of uh, that thinking, uh, you know, is very historic around, you know, make a decision about your career by 18, get married, bang out a few dead, uh, sure. kids, because you're going to be dead by the time you're 50 years old. Mm -hmm. And uh, now, you know, uh, unless we're run over by a car or a chain smoker or whatever, it's likely people of our generation will live, you know, into our 90s and be working into our 70s. So it certainly, it changes the entire paradigm around a lot of this sort of thinking about yeah. uh, professional development and about, you know, women uh, having opportunities to uh, realise their own full potential in mm. terms of their careers and so on. Fascinating. So um, the majority of people listening to this podcast have aspirations to being a CEO or a senior leader. Um, you've talked a lot about you know, your why and some great information so far, but if you were talking to that audience around some of your key learnings, um, what would be some of the things that you'd share about uh, enabling uh, people to realise their full potential? Mm, good question. I think it really is about people. Uh, at the end of the day, it's, it's all about people. It's all about understanding our fellow human beings as best we possibly can. I think that the ability to understand the perspective of others, vitally important. So really sitting in the shoes of the person that you're talking mm -hmm. to to understand how they are seeing and making meaning out of the world. So the better you can understand that, the, the richer your decisions can be. I think looking at complexity, uh, I think that reality is that uh, everybody goes to various stages in their working life and they have a certain amount of complexity that they're dealing with. And today's world is largely complex, as we know. And if you can imagine the complexity of a young lady at receptions, their view of the world is going to be somewhat different than, say, a sales manager or mm -hmm. a head of a customer service. And as executive chairman running a public company and having a large foundation, the degrees of complexity that I deal with is somewhat different again. Mm -hmm. So looking at from your ability to handle complexity is one of the measurement sticks about uh, your growth. Um, to know yourself is, is, is vitally important. Mm -hmm. um, not to be creating a, a world where you're trying to measure up to the expectations of others. It's much more about understanding truly who you are and what you want to align to. Mm -hmm. What are the values that's going to drive your decision-making process? Because if you've got a good clarity around your values, you then have a moral compass. Mm -hmm. And when you've got a moral compass and you come to a fork in the road when it comes to making a decision, you can revert back to that moral compass to guide you to make the right decisions. And more often than not, you will. Mm -hmm. no, no doubt, failure is always very much part of it. The acceptance of failure is vitally important. People get so hung up about the fear of failure, you know, and that constrains people's potential. Mm. You know, I'm failing on a regular basis. Unless I'm failing on a regular basis, I know I'm not pushing the envelope mm -hmm. enough mm -hmm. to know what my true potential is. Mm -hmm. Certainly, I manage the risk of failure far, far better than I do now than when I was a kid. Mm -hmm. But I was never frightened of failure. I mean, the fact is that failure is part of life's journey. 
It's just how do you manage the risk if it does go wrong? You know, what are the, the elements that you look at? What risk do you take and which ones don't? Mm -hmm. And when you're coming back to the point about moral compass, mm. uh, when you look out across the landscape of your peers, uh, would you say that most people, uh, by the time they reach the, uh, a CEO level, um, are very true to their moral compass? Mm. Do you, are you optimistic about that or a bit pessimistic? Oh, no, no, I'm certainly optimistic. I mean, I think that um, CEOs who are, are running large organisations these days tend to be very in tune mm. with, with who they are and mm -hmm. where they are in the world and that uh, and their connection that they have with their staff and their leadership development uh, that they're doing with people. Most of the, the leaders that I meet usually uh, are, are much more focused about the people component to it than the the making money for money's sake. Mm -hmm. I mean, certainly there's, there's, there's an element of greed that's out there, there's no doubt that that's true, but no, I, I, I have some faith for the quality of leadership, particularly uh, the younger ones coming through. This newer generation of, of, of leaders, I think, are just fabulous. Um, mainly, I suppose it's a bit hard because I've got a lens about this, but the middle management that we have at Silvershift is so much aligned to purpose mm -hmm. and having a connection to doing something that's going to be benefiting their fellow man. Mm -hmm. That uh, it means we've got a wonderful range of talent in that mm -hmm. middle and senior management team at Silvershift are just fabulous. Mm, really that's fantastic. I certainly would agree. I think by you know the time somebody gets to the role of CEO, generally a lot of the aggressive, um, ego-driven mm. nature to climb the corporate ladder has been exhausted mm. and they're looking for you know, a, a broader context to their life. Mm. Um, so we've talked a lot about business today, we've talked about your philanthropic uh, orientation. Uh, just to close out with, so what's Alan all about when he's not at work? <laughs> I think I'm authentically who I am at work and, and at home. I, I don't see the separation of this work-life balanced conversation because that's making the assumption that work is something you have to sacrifice so you can have life mm -hmm. post that and I think that's wrong. I mean I encourage all our people when we're, that we're working together here that they bring to work the best of who they are as human beings and that that person should be exactly the same person that mm -hmm. they are at home. There is no difference. You've got to be authentically true to who you are. So I think I'm pretty consistent in, in my approach to the world. What do you enjoy doing? What I enjoy doing, I, I, as I mentioned, I, I'm a, an avid learner, so I'm a, I'm a great reader and uh, I enjoy that part of it. I am a, a great fan of philosophy, so mm -hmm. uh, that's, that's one of my, my interests. The uh, money game of golf. Okay. My wife is far, far better than I am. I don't play her for money anymore, but she's, right. she's uh, but that's something we enjoy doing together. Okay. And I've got three children and I've got... Uh, one in New York and two in London, so that right. means we do a fair bit of travelling as well. Oh, good on you. And, uh, well, I really appreciate your time today, Alan. It's been a very uh, interesting, informative conversation. I've made some notes about some of the things you've spoken about to put uh, into the show notes, so uh, links to uh, top grading employment process and uh, generating transformational uh, change course and so on. Uh, but I, I really appreciate it and have a fantastic afternoon. Thank you very much. Enjoy. Okay. Well, I trust you enjoyed that interview with Alan. I found him quite fascinating, and it was wonderful to see somebody who truly lives the idea of bringing why into their business in order to foster greater success. I look forward to having you on future episodes of the Arate podcast, and in the meantime, have a great day. Yeah.